remains, and that is to be discovering and learning how God is at work in our world and how we can learn and cooperate with him through the process. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in each of our gatherings, we always want to honour you and your Son, the Lord Jesus. We do so in song, in prayer, in the reading of your word, and in the explanation of it. And that through this process, Lord, we believe that you achieve your purposes, uh, that you, the mighty God, take truths out of songs and out of scripture and use it to feed us, to challenge us, to shape us, to help us follow the Lord Jesus. So we ask that you might continue your purposes and that you would achieve your will this morning. Speak to us and help us to draw very near to you and to remain close and near to you each day of our life. Assist us, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the frustrating things about emails, and there are several, aren't there, is that you get these strange emails from people, sometimes from people you know, and they're telling you that they're stuck in some airport in some country, and that if you send money, they'll be able to return, everything has been stolen, and you know them, and so they'll repay you in kind when they get back. You get those emails? Well, there's another one that's just started coming for me, that I keep winning things. <laughs> Which is really amazing, because I haven't ended any of these things. Uh, but you may not be aware that these are a great temptation to me. Because when I was at Teachers College, when I was engaged to Rhonda, so that was then very well known, so now this is in our second year, I guess, at Teachers College, Rhonda and I won a raffle. And it was a wheelbarrow full of food and groceries, stuff like that, which was absolutely incredible because we didn't enter the raffle. So somebody else must have put our name in or something. And so whenever I get an email where people are saying, I've won something, I think, oh, it's happened again. <clears throat> no, I find them annoying. Because they're not true, are they? They're deceptive. People are trying to con you. Don't you just hate it when people try to con you? I'm not sure how many of you here this morning actually work in the retail industry, but I'm sure this is part of their train training. But I just find it annoying that you go into a particular shop, doesn't matter what shop it is, they all do it. And whether you're buying a coffee machine or buying jewellery or buying some electrical appliance, whatever, the sale or clothes, the salesperson will say to you that this is one of the best products, that this is really quality, and it really, if, you wear, if it's clothes, that looks really good on you. Or if it's this one, then it really suits you. And you, then you change your mind. Now they're stuck. And you go to something else, but they'll have a spiel attached to that. They're just giving you sales hype. It's not real. They're not being genuine. And occasionally, it's just delightful to meet someone or to encounter a salesperson who actually does tell you the truth. All right, that's good and that'll serve what you want, but this one over there is better. I've even had one person, probably they don't work there anymore, but they sent me actually to another shop. <laughs> <clears throat> that's pretty helpful, isn't it? 
Well, just like we encounter in our normal everyday life, so in our churches, and particularly way back in the first century, there were con artists, there are deceivers, there are people who actually come in amongst you, and their whole goal is to deceive, to lead you astray, to benefit their own means and ends. In this letter of 1 John, John tells us in chapter 2 and verse 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Talk a little bit about the context of that in a moment. But he says it straight out. There are people amongst you who are trying to lead you astray. Here are three verses from other parts of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 11, um, he talks about false apostles and deceitful workers who disguise themselves. They pretend to be apostles of Christ. No wonder Satan does the same thing, transforms himself into an angel of light. And then he says, therefore it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They pretend. And they're good at it. They're deceptive. The Apostle Paul, same Apostle, he says in Acts 29, Acts 20, verse 29, that uh, he gathered the elders from Ephesus, which is where 1 John is written to, the city of Ephesus, gathers these elders together. Paul had spent three, three and a half years with this particular church and seen growth not only in the church but in neighbouring churches and had been very effective in in the ministry. And in Acts chapter 20, he calls the elders together because he's heading to Jerusalem and he has this final parting word with them. And he basically says, look, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, to the Holy Spirit who will lead you and guide you. He's the one who has appointed you as leaders. But I know that after I go, savage wolves will come in from the outside seeking to destroy the flock. I know that'll happen. There'll be people on the outside who will seek to hurt and harm. I even know, he says, that even from among your own selves, people will arise in order to lead you astray, deceiving people for their own ends. They're already here, the Apostle Paul says. The wolves will come in not only from outside, but even people from within will rise up to lead astray for their own ends. That's how Satan works in our world. And then you get these um, alarming and frightening words of the Lord Jesus. And he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did prophesy in your name. In your name we cast out demons. In your name we perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. No relationship. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice the dichotomy. They say Jesus is Lord. They perform religious, spiritual acts prophesy, cast out demons, perform miracles. But they don't know Jesus personally. I never knew you. And not only that, they're inconsistent. They practice lawlessness. They say that, but they practice lawlessness. The Apostle John is writing to a church. He's now in his senior years. He's probably in his 90s. Um, Octogenarian, at least, 80s. He's towards the end of the first century. It's probably in the 90s. AD. All of the apostles previously, all of them are now gone. 
And that which the Apostle Paul had predicted in Acts chapter 20 about wolves will come in and people from their own selves will arise up has probably already happened. And he's now writing several decades after some bad things have been happening in the church, particularly in the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> and John is writing either in or to or about the city of Ephesus because early church tradition tells us John had a disciple by the name of Polycarp and Polycarp, the disciple of John, early you know, 100s, uh, tells stories about the Apostle John and about him being in Ephesus and about some of the things he said and did. So we know that John himself was in Ephesus. And in this letter of 1 John, which I commend to you and I invite you to read several times, he describes these false teachers, these people coming in all from within as false prophets. He uses the word antichrist, puts it in the plural, antichrists, people who are opposed to Jesus. Calls them liars, deceivers, uh, people who don't know God, people who are not of God. And in fact, he even says that they are from the world and they belong to the devil. They come to deceive. He uses over 50 times the words like to know or know or to make known. He wants us to have confidence, to have assurance. He wants believers to be certain, to be sure and to be assured of who they are and what they believe. <clears throat> Maybe because of his age, he doesn't pull any punches. He paints it in very black and white terms. There's no subtle tones in 1 John. It's either you're with God or you're with the devil. <clears throat> There's nobody in the process in between. Black or white, whichever way it goes. Um, and for us, it's a little bit like, we're list you, you've done this, I'm sure. Uh, you've been listening to somebody who was on the phone and you can only hear their height side of the conversation and you're trying to anticipate or guess what the other person on the other end of the phone is saying. And you're gauging that by the reaction or the response of what the people are saying. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing when we read 1 John. We're reading one side of the conversation. We're reading John's side. And so we're trying to put together on the other side of it, what's he responding to and what's he saying or so on. Well, in John's time, before I read you the scriptures this morning, in John's time, these false prophets false teachers had come. And while not all New Testament scholars would agree with this, there is a growing New Testament scholars' agreement that there is this thing called Gnosticism. If you're a Dan Brown fan, then you would know about Gnosticism and the Da Vinci Code. The Gnostics were a group of people who emerged in the second and third century. Well, they didn't emerge then. They became very strong then. But they had been around for centuries beforehand, just on a much lower key. And that's the growing consensus of the New Testament scholars, that Gnosticism was back in the time of the writing of the New Testament. There are glimpses of it through Colossians, through Timothy, through 1 John, and so on. And the Gnostics basically believed, well, they were dualistic. They had this uh, spirit is good and matter. Anything physical was evil. Um, and therefore, God, who was spirit and perfect and good, could never be material, could never be human. So therefore, by definition, either Jesus is not God or Jesus was not human, one or the other. They denied his deity and they denied his humanity. They did both. But there were other implications, moral implications that flew out of that. If, if spirit is good and matter is evil, then it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. I can indulge all the sinful pleasures of my flesh because it doesn't matter matter is 
immaterial. What counts is spirit. What am I like in my spirit? And so you could have people going around saying that spiritually they are without sin, even though their lives are completely immoral. Does that make sense? You've got this sort of dichotomy, this dualism going on. But the Gnostics also had this belief, because God was spirit, therefore God didn't make the material world. What God did, it's like a staircase from God all the way down to the physical universe. And that on each step of the staircase, there is a, a being. So God, the supreme being, creates a being, who 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 creates Jesus. And Jesus makes the world. This is one form of Gnosticism. And so Jesus is not God. He's far removed from him. And the Gnostics believed that they had special insight, that in fact they had a relationship with the true and living God, the supreme being, and they didn't need Jesus to do that. Okay? And there are people like that in our world today, some of the cults and so on. Um, so John is writing to counteract these sorts of beliefs and practices. So there is a doctrinal test you'll, we will find in the 1 John. It's, do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Jesus, the man, is the divine promised one, the son of God, the one who came in the flesh. Do you believe that? That's one test. There's an ethical test. Does your life reflect growing obedience to him? Not to rules and regulations of people and to the Gnostics, but do you follow what his commands say? Not because it's in the body, therefore it doesn't matter what I do with my body. No, no, there's ethical implications about obeying Jesus. And then thirdly, there is a relational test, doctrinal, ethical or moral, and relational test. Does your life reflect a growing practical concern and love for other people? To the Gnostics, because of their belief, they believed that they had contact with the true and living God, they had special insight that other people didn't have, it made them arrogant. And it made them look either down upon others who were the outsiders who didn't know, or it made them feel that they were the spiritual elite. They didn't need to associate with normal, ordinary Christians. So these three tests as we work through. So let's read God's word. We're going to read 1 John chapter 1, all the way down to John chapter 2 and verse 6. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we heard from the beginning to declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie, don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim 
we haven't sinned and we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he says or commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we know him. We are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. You can, I think, pick up some of the themes of why John says some of the things he says given the context in which he is writing. <clears throat> what does all this mean? for us. Well, let me work out my way through the passage, not verse by verse and certainly not word by word, but taking some of the key and large sections of it. To begin with, true Christianity is not essentially a system of thought, unlike the Gnostics who had this list of beliefs and insights and secret knowledge. True Christianity is, while there are things to know and believe, it's not about concepts, it's about a person. It's the truths about him, Jesus, who is historically validated, personally to be experienced, and is the one who was proclaimed by the apostles who actually journeyed with him. That's what John says, I think, in the opening paragraph. He says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, hands have touched him, he was here historically in the flesh, saw him, heard him, touched him, saw the miracles that he did, heard the teaching that he gave. I can verify that he was here in space-time history. Well, John certainly means that. But that opening phrase, that which was from the beginning, some commentators, and you can take it two ways, <clears throat> some commentators, preachers take it to mean that which was from the beginning is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who was eternal. He was from the beginning. You know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does that make sense? They see it as a reference to Jesus being eternal. That's possible. Other preachers, commentators take it to mean, no, not the beginning of Jesus' eternalness, which they still believe, but they say, no, it's the beginning of the gospel message. The message from the very beginning was that God's son Jesus came into our world. That's the message that we're preaching to you now. It's not the new fangled-angled message of the Gnostics or these false teachers. It's the same message. There's not, when you think about it, a great deal of difference between either one of those. So it's not absolutely crucial you come down on one side or the other. But it is possible to have that various opinions or interpretation of it. As I said, it, they heard his teaching, they saw his miracles and his life with their own eyes. They looked at and examined him very carefully. <clears throat> Something that's referring to the transfiguration. Listen to these words of the Apostle Peter, who's writing 20 years maybe before John. He writes this, and it's about the transfiguration and the context of false teaching. 2 Peter 1 verse 16. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. Peter's referring to the transfiguration where Jesus' glory is manifested. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories of the Gnostics and false prophets and so on um, when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but we saw it ourselves. We are historical witnesses. The other thing to say before I move on, it's also possible that John, at the end of the first century, the Gospels have all been written, the resurrection of Jesus now being proclaimed around the whole Roman Empire, and that in fact he's using words here that are just like Luke 24 or John chapter 20. After Jesus' resurrection, that which was from the beginning, we heard him. After his resurrection, we saw him. After his resurrection, we looked at him. After his resurrection, our hands touched him. Luke uses exactly those words. They heard him. Peace to you. They saw him. They touched him. They embraced him. I didn't tell you this, but one of the forms of Gnosticism in the early century was that uh, Jesus was actually like a, a, an apparition. That if you went up to him and put your hands around him, your hand would go straight through him. You know, he was a... Whatever that word is that I can't think of right now. A hologram. That'll do. Thank you. And that when he walked on sand, he left no footprints. Jesus didn't walk like that either. <clears throat> John saying, no, nah, he was real, space-time history. Saw him, heard him, touched him. Not only saw him, but we examined very closely his life. We looked very carefully at him. And that's the message that we're proclaiming to you. It's the same message. It hasn't changed. That's his point. That's the truth about him. And this truth actually, John says, leads to life in him. It's the word of life. It's not just knowing stuff. It's actually living a life based upon that revelation. So here are a few quick things. I'm not sure where you're at in your walk with Jesus. Most of you know Jesus. Not all of you do, and some of you are on the way. Number one, you need reliable information about him. You certainly get that through the Gospels and through the Bible. There are other sources of reliable information as well, but they'll invariably all come back to the original source, Scriptures. You need reliable information about him. Continue your search and quest. And God promises that if you search for him with all your heart, you will find him. You need reliable information. <clears throat> that information will lead you to, when you understand who he is and what he did, God will open your eyes and that will lead you into life, eternal life. When you experience forgiveness and the incoming of his spirit. That's how John finishes this letter. In chapter 5, verse 20, he says, uh, We know also that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We know him. We understand the truth that he has given to us. And because we are in him and he is in us, we now experience his life in us. And there is a transformation. Back to chapter 1, verse 3, John says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. Notice that? When you come, based upon reliable information, to understanding who Jesus is, and you respond to him, he becomes your Lord and Saviour, the implication and the consequences of that is that you not only get eternal life, you enter into that life, into a relationship, a fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus, and into fellowship with other believers. 
Now, through 1 John, John will have this balance all the time. It's a vertical fellowship and there is a horizontal fellowship. And John will go on to teach us, if you say, I have fellowship with God, I have a relationship with him, but I don't have anything to do with any other Christians, I'm not in fellowship with other Christians, then John says, you're deceived. You really don't have that. If you have this vertically, you will also have this horizontally. And he reverses it. It's not just a social club where you have social fellowship with one another. If you say that you have that and you're doing that in the name of Jesus, then you must also have this personal relationship with Jesus. You can't have one without the other. So Christianity is based upon revelation and it's realised in this relationship, both of them. It's not a secret, like the Gnostic said. In fact, it's for the whole world, as he goes on to say. And it issues forth, verse 4, into joy. There is this consequence to being rightly related with God that you are now at peace. You are relieved, satisfied. Excuse me, he's not saying that you're always happy. He's not saying you're always upbeat. But there is this deep inner contentment. Do you know him? Know him, not know about him. Do you know him personally? You're in fellowship with him. We're in fellowship with his people. Well, John goes on to apply this very quickly, <clears throat> and I need to hurry. He says in verse 5, this is the message that we've heard from him, clear to you. This message about Jesus, number one, God is light. What does that mean? God is light. Could mean several things, but I think in this context, John means that God is holy. God is holy. In him, there is no darkness at all. If you're in fellowship with a God who is holy, then he goes on to say, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, excuse me, we lie and do not live by the truth, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. God is holy. What does it mean for us to have fellowship with a God who is holy, with a God who is in the light? It means that we will be honest and vulnerable about our faults, our sins, our struggles. We're not putting on a pretense. We're not going to pretend to be better than we are, though for our own psychological reasons we do that, don't we? But really, when push comes to shove, Christians will be people who are honest and vulnerable. <clears throat> we don't look morally down our noses at the other people and think we're better than them because we know we're not. We know that we are sinful and we know just as sinful as they are as well. We're not perfect. We're all a work in progress. And we should stop all this nonsense about self-righteousness and, you know, all of that. It's like, let me give you this illustration. It's like going to the cinema. Rhonda and I like going to the cinema. We don't go anywhere near enough. But every time we do, we usually buy something to eat. Back in the old days, I used to always buy those choc tops. <clears throat> you know, the ice cream, that's an ice cream with chocolate coated on it for all of you who don't know what that is. And invariably, when you eat one of those, a little bit of chocolate's going to fall off and fall onto the main catchment area that we all have <laughs> in front of us. When that happens, you don't know you've done it, do you? Why? Because you're in the dark. You're watching the cinema. You're watching the movie. But when the lights come on or when you leave the cinema and you go outside, guess what happens? Yeah, your wife will point out to you that you've got, you'll realise you've got chocolate on you. You don't see it in the dark, you see it in the... When you walk with God, what do you see? <laughs> yes, Jesus, chocolate. 
Okay. Just as a test for those who are true believers, everybody look down here. Anybody see chocolate? Uh-oh. I dwell amongst Queenslanders. <laughs> Fellowship with God in the light means that you will be open and honest about these stains and blemishes that we have in our life. In other words, when it's not that we go around bragging about our sin, but when someone corrects us about our sin, we will be more inclined and eventually will agree. We will admit it. We'll accept, yep, you're right. I'm responsible. I did the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. Um, this is not appropriate as a follower of Jesus. Of course, you might go through the initial stage you know, of all the ego-saving things and denying it and blaming others, and, but eventually you'll come to that point of brokenness of saying, actually, that's, that's true. I did do that and it was wrong. So there's a test for you. Is that what's happening in your life, that God is increasingly revealing parts of the area of your life that need to be cured. To walk in the darkness is the opposite of that. It's to ignore or to deny sin. It's to block out the light of God's influence, to try to hide from him. So therefore, people, let us be a group of people who allow God's word and God to speak through us, through his word, to confront our sin. As you read the Bible, listen to what God is saying to you about your thinking processes, about your words, about your attitudes, about your motives, about your behaviours. Let God shine his light on you. And if you're avoiding it, if you're avoiding the light, if you're dwelling in the shadows or the darkness, that's an indication, something's not right. And it could be an indication uh, that you're not in fellowship with the one who was in the light, that you're dwelling in darkness. And John says, you're deceiving yourself, you're a liar. You think you're in when really you're not. That's a test. Walk in the light, as he is in the light. Not that that, don't misunderstand me, this does not make us part of the spiritual elite. It doesn't make us part of a super class of Christians. It just makes us normal, ordinary Christians. Because all of us walk in the light. So let's live openly before God. Come to his light. Allow him to cleanse us. And I do want to communicate this to you. This is how I understand that it works. I have a conscience level, things that I'm aware of in my life, but I also have part of my life that I'm not aware of, a subconscious level. And my wife can be aware of that in me. She can be aware of some habits or things that I do that are not right, but I'm not aware of them. And unless somebody else points them out to me, I will not be aware of them. And usually if I'm not aware of them and you're pointing them out to me, then probably I'm going to deny it. I'm probably going to say, and that's not true. So you've got to go through this process of, Lord, is that true? And if it is, and what God does is this. He deals with us at the conscious level. What are we aware of? And he'll point areas of things we say or things we do or attitudes or motives, whatever. <clears throat> and he'll say, that wasn't right, Daryl. Your, your tone was wrong. Or you know, your attitude of heart, your words are, are, are fine, but the attitude of heart was wrong. And he does things like that with us. And then what he does is he wants us to keep this clean, cleansed, confessing our sins when we stuff up there. And he doesn't deal with all this hidden secret stuff that we have. Make sense? You have a look at verse 7. 
it says, if we walk in the light, reading the Bible and responding to it, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, so I'm in fellowship with my brothers and sisters, then the outflowing of that is the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies me from all sin. All sin. But what happens when I sin and I become conscious of it? Well, verse 9 says we have to confess our sins, the sins that we are aware of. We confess those to God. And then he forgives and he cleanses us. So this is what the Holy Spirit will do in our life. He will take parts of our subconscious life, parts of the areas of our life that we are not even aware of, and he'll bring it to the conscious level. And he'll say, let's work on that. And then you'll get victory over that sin or that habit or whatever it is in your life. And then he'll pick another area. And so through the process of time and of maturing and progressing of walking in the light, we become increasingly more like Jesus. Do we ever reach sinless perfection? Not in this lifetime. But you do get glimpses of it. And you do get the very nearness of him who is in the light walking with you. Holiness is essential. Holy living is possible. Sinless perfection isn't. But holiness, walking closely with Jesus, endeavouring to be righteous and God-honouring, Christ-centred, is possible and is essential. Do we all do that perfectly? No. Do we all stumble? Yes. Do you know what to do when you stumble? I hope so. Be vulnerable, be honest, confess it, repent, pick yourself up and go again. But I'll just stumble again, probably. Then be vulnerable, be honest, confess it and let him know. Because John goes on to say, my dear children, I write this to you so that you won't sin. Walk in the light, stay close to him. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Speaks up on our behalf. He's the one who paid the penalty for our sin. And not only for ours, but the door is open. It's for the sins of the whole world. This is not a secret. This is not just for the spiritually elite, like the Gnostics were saying. This is for everybody to know, for everybody to experience. Walk in the light. So let me conclude so that we can sing our final song and bring our service to a conclusion. There is a doctrinal test. <clears throat> Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh? Do you believe and understand that? Does your life reflect a growing obedience to him, walking in the light? And there's also a relational test. Does your life reflect a growing practical love for others? Two things come out of that. Work on your relationship with God and let's work on our relationship with one another. Work on your relationship with God. Don't settle for just the religious routine. Once a week, turn up at church, go through this, feel close to God and then leave the service and then just drift again. Don't, don't accept a distant, estranged relationship from him. Set aside time, make time, meet up with him, talk with him very openly, very honestly. There's no other way to do it. Read his Bible word and listen to him. Have a conversation with him. Read whatever else is going to help you discover more about him. And if there's anything particularly in your life which is hindering that closeness with God, remove it, put it aside. Make a choice. Work on your relationship with God. Finally, number two, work on your relationship with other believers. It takes effort, doesn't it? 
There are no perfect ones. We always, at some point, will hurt or upset or be grieved by somebody or other. We'll do it to them, they'll do it to us. But our relationships can be good, they can be positive, they can be strong, and they can survive that, if it is required. And the payoff that John gives us is not just closeness of support with brothers and sisters and with God our Father who is delighted with that, but it says it'll bring joy, complete joy, satisfaction in our soul because of that. That's God's will and intention for us, to know Jesus, to be connected with his people and to be walking in the light with him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the true and living God. You sent your son, Jesus, into our world to die for, to pay the penalty for, and to redeem us, reconciling us to yourself. You haven't abandoned us, but now you come and dwell in us through your spirit. And it's your desire, Lord, that we both know you, that we walk in closeness and the light with you and in fellowship with you, but also to walk in fellowship with fellow believers. Lord, can you help us to work on both dimensions in our relationships with you and with other believers? And then out of the overflow of that, help us to be authentic towards those who are still on the way, towards those who haven't yet discovered the reality of a relationship with you and of a genuine fellowship with believers. Help us, Lord, to this end, to cooperate with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.